0: Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization and becoming more of who you already are. Every week we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This week, I have a treat for you. I sat down with Dominic D'Agostino, who is a tenured professor at the University of South Florida in molecular pharmacology and physiology. And he has a PhD in neuroscience but he is most widely regarded and recognized as one of the premier experts on ketosis and the ketogenic diet and its impact on brain metabolism. And this is really all variants of ketosis and all variants of the ketogenic diet and most well known for the application of exogenous ketones. You might call him the king of keto, um, and indeed, I believe that he is. Now, a couple things about this pod: very technical. So, we were gonna, we are gonna make sure that we are extra specific in the show notes in breaking uh, things down for you in terms of timestamps, and in our conversation, we get into. All of the benefits of ketosis, including impacts on the microbiome, the use of fiber in a ketogenic diet and the production of postbiotics like short chain fatty acids and their impact on the microbiome. We, of course, get into exogenous ketone use, and this is where it actually gets super nerdy. So we talk about ketone salts versus ketone esters. We look at different enantiomers of exogenous ketones and why it's important to know what kind of ketone uh, you have, especially if you are measuring ketones in the blood. We talk about the benefits of exogenous ketones, including the glucose lowering effect and the impact that ketones have on metabolism. We talk about ketones, both endogenous and exogenous as a longevity molecule that can activate longevity pathways. And we also get into stacks. So we talk about how we can blend ketones with other things like caffeine, which is a practice that I uh, really like. And you'll hear me talk about this in the pod as well as other substances as well. And of course, you're not gonna have a conversation with the Kim Keto without talking about women and the ketogenic diet and the effect of ketosis. Now, of course, many of you know that this is my life's work, which is understanding how we can take principles and apply them to a in a female-centric way to honor female physiology. And we talk about women. And keto and thyroid function. We talk about how we can alter carbohydrates and protein uh, and protein for our women supplementation considerations. What happens when we excessively fast, and what happens when we have excessive cardio, and how all of those things together, sort of like a uh, like a trident, you know, a three pronged trident, can impact um, the effic- uh, the efficaciousness of the application of a keto ketogenic diet for women. I've been following Dom's work for many, many years. It was such a treat to sit down and talk to him. And you are going to also really, really benefit from this. Keto is something that I don't think is going away. It is a viable alternative to some of the other diets that we see. And when it is done in a correct way, you know, corrected for sex, for chromosomal sex, uh, then we can really have uh, wonderful, wonderful outcomes with it. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dominic D'Agostino. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving B Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just tastes like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right, Dom, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today.
1: I'm thrilled to be on. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show because we're going to be, we were just talking in the pre-chat and we're going to talk all things keto, uh, as much, uh, research around women, uh, as we can relate it to in terms of your understanding. And I also want to talk about some of the common, um, we'll say objections or common, uh, you know, where people run into trouble with the ketogenic diet. So I want to talk about cholesterol, uh, maybe uh, exogenous ketone supplementation um, and thyroid metabolism, exercise and fasting, all the stuff that I I am commonly asked. And, you know, you are very much... Uh, Regarded as, you know, we'll call you the king of keto, maybe, but, um, you know, someone who's very well versed in (laughs) TM, uh, but someone who's very well versed in the literature and the scientific application of it. So I wanted to explore some of these topics with you to see, um, you know, where you stand on them, what the current literature uh, is directing, and that can help some of the clinicians who also listen to this podcast as well to help with their directives as well.
1: Yeah.
0: So, Yeah, let's, let's start with, let's start with the benefits of ketosis. Um, I think that um, I have in my clinical uh, practice, I have found, you know, an enormous amount of benefits for a therapeutic intervention of ketosis, whether that's, you know, a short delta, long delta, you know, depends on the, on the person, but let's assume Mm -hmm. for the purposes of this conversation that um, we will define a person as healthy and by healthy, we mean you know, they don't have any egregious like lab markers. We'll talk about labs, labs today as well, but they've heard of the ketogenic diet. They're interested in the ketogenic diet. What would be some of the benefits, um, that an otherwise healthy person, um, to, to starting the ketogenic diet, what would those be?
1: Yeah, well, I'll describe it from my point of view. And I think, um, as you're very well versed and you articulate very well and have a community of women. And I think things, things are different with women. Uh, but from my perspective, um, I handle fasting very well. So I started, you know, getting into sort of intermittent fasting and understanding that, that the more I did it, the more fat adapted I became and the easier it became to do. And the faster I got into ketosis and, um, And I I got into studying the ketogenic diet because my research program was looking at uh, seizures, tonic-clonic seizures that were a consequence of oxygen toxicity, uh, central nervous system oxygen toxicity, which limits Navy SEAL divers. It's also a limitation of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Uh, You can only go up so high uh, in pressure and you'll induce a seizure. So We were investigating the mechanisms of that and I wanted to fully understand mechanistically, you know, why it was working, but I wanted to do it myself. <laughs> in addition to that, and I I kind of I did the uh, the medical ketogenic diet which is very high in fat, moderate in protein. And the experience, the benefits that I experienced, it was very hard to, you know, implement and sustain on a daily basis, and that's another question we could talk about cyclic ketogenic diet. But after about, I did lose strength in the gym, but after about two months, maybe three months, I started to, my my strength uh, got back to stable and I started to increase strength as I started adjusting my protein. And, but what I really experienced um, and in the world of academia, where you're just kind of stuck in the lab or teaching all day, is that it controlled my appetite. Uh, unlike anything I had ever experienced because I had like a rabbit appetite and uh, it was able to uh, two things. Mostly the benefits were it, it, uh, it prevented my appetite from controlling me. <laughs> so usually I would have to stop what I was doing, like in the lab, like the experiment or whatever, just, and then go eat. But being, being fat adapted in a state of ketosis, your glycemic variability is very controlled and uh and i think that's that's a big part of it and your hormones are kind of balanced in a way i think to prevent um you know you're satiated after you eat a ketogenic meal and that's a big part of it too fat delays gastric absorption and you're just you have more steady energy flow over time but i and The big thing was I was able to get more work done. So I gradually sort of transitioned in 2008, I believe, to eating this way. And I kind of stuck with it. And then the medical community published on the modified ketogenic diet or the modified Atkins diet. And that was Eric Kossoff at Johns Hopkins. And I was really my my only knowledge of the ketogenic diet was through the epilepsy literature. And it was shown that people on a modified ketogenic diet which was much higher in protein it went from like 10 percent to like 20 or 30 percent and it was also called modified atkins and then this was really good for you know someone who lifts weights and it's kind of like the ketogenic diet you hear about now modified ketogenic diet and that increase in protein i was still able to maintain the state of ketosis and maintain muscle maintain strength in the gym Uh, but i really do it from the cognitive for me, uh, the big benefits were energy flow throughout the day, uh, mood, I think. And, uh, I also had like a little bit of anxiety, uh, in, I think I just kind of grew up very shy person and, uh, public speaking absolutely terrified me. And I didn't even want to do a PhD because I knew I had to do a public defense. And I remember just, that was absolutely terrifying. Uh, and so I think, I think it really helped from an anxiety and mood and, and allowed me to be uh, allowed me to leverage my potential a little bit better just through being able to work harder, sustain longer uh, cognitive efforts over time, get more publications, get more work done, you know, things like that. So um, I think that's maybe the benefits that may appeal to some of the people, you know, that, that do it from your side, but there are, side effects too, that you have to sort of manage along the way.
0: Yeah. And I, I think some of the benefits that you're talking about, many women, uh, can relate to, you know, not being controlled by our hunger. This is something that I think a lot of women, uh, struggle with. And I think when you go from, you know, any, any other type of even, um, you know, more of like a paleolithic type of, um, diet to more of a ketogenic diet, the amount of fat, um, that you take in is such a, Wonderful appetite suppressant, and it's so satiating, um, and really and really helps. And I think just naturally, at least my my observation has been that when women transition to a ketogenic diet, they naturally will uh, drop their caloric intake because the you know, first the, the density of fat obviously is, you know, nine kilocals per gram versus you know, the four that we see in protein and, and carbohydrates and the seven in, in alcohol. But it's, it's very much um, a satiating diet. We see a natural caloric restriction, which can account, may account for, some of that initial rapid weight loss that um, we see in a lot of women you know my you know my big goal is like to get women away from these twelve hundred calorie diets because so many of them have been doing twelve hundred calories for decades, which has you know we can talk about extended caloric restriction and in our in our conversation. But I think one of the one of the benefits is that it's easier to calorically restrict on a ketogenic diet because you just feel fuller, right?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely truth to that. I think fat and a combination of protein. Um, can influence a number of different hormones um, and for, for most people uh, one thing about the ketogenic diet for some people uh, it has to do with their relationship with food and I think uh, when I started with the ketogenic diet and I was measuring it out and wanted to be caloric the amount of food that was on my plate was not very not very big yeah you know I mean because the caloric density is so high right so you know you know and and when ketogenic food companies came out and were sending you prepackaged ketogenic foods, I know Quest Nutrition did this for a while, and it was like I was looking at the amount of food I would eat like four or five you know meals or whatever to for for my caloric intake, and it was just such a small amount of food mm-hmm. uh, and you have to get used to that, and your stomach sort of like shrinks over time, and I think that that plays into you know, your meal too, as you stretch your stomach with more food and you're not the the volume of food that you consume plays a role in, in how you feel in your satiation too. And for some people, I think they're maybe more sensitive to that. So they, you know, I know, and I think this seems to be more prevalent in, in females that sometimes they overeat. They get very into like cooking with ketogenic and making it, almost hyper palatable. I always say like the ketogenic diet is good for weight loss because it's hyper satiating and palatable <laughs> in a way, because it's <laughs> yeah. not, uh, although you can cook meals and make fat bombs and uh, things. And my, I think my sister did this too. And she actually like gained weight on the ketogenic diet a little bit as I've communicated with a number, probably only women that have communicated with me, a subset of them that have gained weight on the ketogenic diet. I think because, uh, it's easy. I mean, I could sit down with a bag of cashews and do a lot of damage as sort of caloric intake. So, uh, but if I'm eating, you know, just fish, meat, vegetables, uh, the, my version of the ketogenic diet now is quite high in fiber. And I think that plays a big role. Uh, I'm not necessarily a carnivore advocate. I think the carnivore diet is great for some people. I think it could, it's, It can sustain life, but, uh, you can survive just off eating meat as you can survive off being a a complete, a vegan diet, but I don't think it's optimal. I think the optimal diet is omnivorous diet, you know, higher in protein, higher in fat than sort of the standard American diet with a liberal amounts of, of fiber. So I've sort of gravitated to that over the years and, uh, and I have blood work to show, at least in my case, that, that produces favorable changes in biomarkers of cardiometabolic health.
0: So let's, let's touch on the, let's touch on the biomarkers. And my other question to you, as you were talking, I was curious about how the composition of your ketogenic diet. So the sort of classic four, did you start off more of like the classic four to one, um, pro, uh, you know, macronutrient split with keto, and then you've maybe moved to increasing your carbohydrates over time. What, how has your, um, application of the diet changed?
1: I did. I started with like the truly classic, uh, one ketogenic diet. The book was written by John Freeman and Eric Kossoff from Johns Hopkins. And, uh, it was tough. I mean, it was like, I had like an egg yolk omelet and with butter and that was kind of like breakfast. And then fat was just tons of olive oil and steak with like butter, uh, but I was actually getting a lot of my calories from a product called KetoCal, And that was like a four to one ratio. It was basically just like drinking fat. And uh, at the time we didn't really know a lot about hydrogenated fats. So it was essentially, like casein and hydrogenated fats and like a little bit of sweetener. And (laughs) it was not, they've changed their formula now. That's like, you know, hydrogenated fats are almost like outlawed in most countries. Uh, So that I had a bit of a sharp, I almost felt like I was lightly sedated. Like once I got into a state of ketosis, like a little bit drunk, a little bit like just, I was very calm. And I think it made me from being, um, uh, a little bit type a sort of hyper anxious to just very calm and almost overly relaxed. Uh, but at the same time, I was very productive. Uh, and then I, I started losing some strength, uh, at the time I was quite bigger at the time, but I was losing some strength. So I probably had some weight to lose, um, but I was losing some muscle. And I remember distinctly in 2008, uh, the Eric Kossoff published the, the, Uh, modified Atkins diet. And I had advised a, a patient who was doing a bodybuilding contest. His name was Mike Dancer and he had drug resistant epilepsy, terminal epilepsy, and the doctors, he had tried every drug on the planet. And, uh, And I communicated with him and I told him about the ketogenic diet and he did the ketogenic diet. We didn't talk for about three months. And then he communicated with me again and said he had not had a seizure and he was having multiple seizures per day. So his story became quite popular online. And uh, I think bodybuilding.com like featured him in one of the articles and he was like, you know, in, in the newspapers and things like that. And, uh, and he actually, uh, he was, I incorporated him, his story in my TEDx talk. So uh, that, that he, and seeing his response to the ketogenic diet motivated me more, not only to use it, you know, as a lifestyle approach and that you can kind of use it for sports and powerlifting and whatever, but, but to also pursue a career path where I was investigating the efficacy and the mechanism of the ketogenic diet for different for you know seizures and neurological diseases and and even cancer later on I had a student come in and she was very interested in, in investigating this for cancer. So that became a whole nother PhD dissertation research publications from that.
0: And so your modified Atkins is I typically talk about a 70, 20, 10. So I typically talk about like a 70% fat, about 20% Mm -hmm. protein or so. And then the fill is carbohydrates. Is that close to what you shape shifted into or something different?
1: That's very close. Yeah. Uh, and, and I occasionally, you know, I used to be very, um, I used to record everything, but now I'm so such, a routine oriented person that I know exactly what I eat and can kind of look at a plate and kind of calculate the macros in in my head. Uh, But I would use a a various macro trackers throughout the years. And I always come out to about 65% fat to on some days it could be as high as like, or low as 50% fat, but generally about uh, 25 to 35% protein. And, and then the balance of that, you know, being high fiber carbohydrates in the form of, Salads, we eat a lot of broccoli uh, from the Bristolica family and cauliflower, asparagus, uh, salad greens. And then I do have some fruit like at night, usually like uh, wild blueberries or uh, something from our property.
0: That's great. And so speaking speaking of... you know, the Brassica genus, let's talk a little bit about the microbiome, because I think that I've, I've heard a lot on, on really both sides, um, of the fence around the, um, effects of the ketogenic diet on the diversity of the microbiome. Now, keeping in mind, we don't know, I mean, even as a practitioner, you know, I do GI maps all the time and sometimes, I mean, I don't know what I'm looking at either. Right. So, you know, we don't know everything about the microbiome at least. Um, but I wanted to Speak to maybe the benefits around soluble fibers that we might see in things like broccoli, broccoli sprouts, cauliflower, et cetera. Um, So maybe you can walk us through some of the advantages and or disadvantages um, to the diversity and function of the the microbiome with a ketogenic diet.
1: Yeah, your microbiome eats what you eat really, and that will dictate the, the volume of the microbiome and the diversity. So um I'll say this there's a lot that I don't know although it is an area of research that we do uh small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is a fairly big problem with with some people and yeah. a ketogenic diet or just even a low carb diet or intermittent fasting can be very helpful for for that um so there's you know my kind of feeling is that um there's there's people who can do a carnivore diet, which is completely devoid of fiber and do perfectly fine. And that's, that was kind of surprising to me because that was my concern with the ketogenic diet Uh, initially is that it was really low in fiber. So uh, strawberries have kind of relatively high fiber lower. So I remember in the beginning I would have like one or two strawberries or something like that. And that would be like, the whole fiber for the day, but I was taking a uh, psyllium husk, uh, small amounts of that, and was thinking that this would be important. Uh, there's a v- variety of different fibers that are in ketogenic products now, uh, like chicory root and inulin and acacia man and they do a number on my stomach i had someone sent me product last night and i ate it and it just caused like like major intestinal bloating and i didn't even i didn't get a good sleep so and and some people do really well with those kinds of fibers so i don't think my body personally does not need a lot of fiber i think to maintain a healthy microbiome just based upon feel, and, and I haven't done extensive analysis of my microbiome, but it's, it's very obvious that some people can do quite well off little or no fiber, and that will undoubtedly decrease the overall diversity of their microbiome, but it might be shifting it in a way that uh is favorable <laughs> and like a way and,
0: for more opportunistic bacteria yeah, and pathogens. Yeah. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so there's research coming out now that instead of I think I do think that soluble and insoluble fiber is important in having, I mean, our ancestors Eight. One of the one of my uh, as an undergrad, I studied nutrition science and majored in that, and then went on to double major in biology. I went into neuroscience to do my PhD, but I was always interested in nutrition, and even you know kept up on the literature. And it's very clear that our early ancestors ate a huge amount of fiber, like 100, 200 grams of fiber a day, which is normal for us. Uh, but it, so it's very interesting. I I think what's very interesting is that humans are incredibly adaptable in the amount of fiber that they can have in their diet and and their just diet in general. They can eat completely like fat fat. And protein, like the Inuit, or completely vegan, like in some populations, um, and do very well. So I think we're very adaptable. Fermented foods, there's a couple of publications that came out recently that uh, eating fermented foods may actually have a more favorable effect on your microbiome than. Uh, uh, a similar group that was just eating different a diversity of different fibers. So I think that's, that's an important, uh, I think there's research that we need to do there on fermented foods too. In regards to the microbiome, I'm not a microbiome expert, although we are doing research on the microbiome, we've done space analog research on NASA extreme environment mission operations where we have astronaut poop in our saying that we have samples from different studies that we did, Looking at this and how extreme environments may shift it, and I'm in you know correspondence with all the top you know uh, researchers. I do have some com- some concerns about the rodent model studies that are looking at this and the translatability of that research. I think what I'll say now: I think fiber is important for the diet. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea to completely have a diet that's devoid of fiber, like the trend with the carnivore diet. And I, I think I'm becoming increasingly interested in the benefits of fermented food mm-hmm. incorporated into the diet. So I think uh, there's some favorable shifts in the microbiome from fermented food.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I, I we were talking in the pre-chat and I was I was telling you about. A, a lot of times it's my auto, it's my Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, my Hashi women, um, where mm. we might have a therapeutic intervention of a carnivore diet for, a, for a short Delta. Like it's not years and years, it might be three months, it might be six months. Um, and we see measurable improvements in, for example, hyperintestinal, you know, in, in terms of the permeability of the gut. Um, and we will see, um, uh, you know, their, uh, thyroid, like their anti, the auto antibodies, uh, reduce once we redo their thyroid panel again. And so it's interesting. I think carnivore, uh, is very interesting as a therapeutic intervention. And of course there's a lot of case studies, anecdotal, um, uh, case studies where women are reporting. I did carnivore and my Hashimoto's went into remission or my MS or my Name the autoimmune disorder here. You know, went into remission. So I think it's an interesting um, um, construct as a as an intervention, but with a temporary with it with an with an expiry date on it. And I tend to yeah. agree with you with the the fiber over the long term. I think is important, but if we have you know, gut dysbiosis, we have opportunistic pathogens that have overtaken the diversity uh, in the microbiome, or, um, you know, we don't have, um, I mean, those things need to be corrected for before you're eating any, because then anything you eat is now, if you have that increased um, intestinal permeability, then you're going to be getting all of these bits of food and viruses and blah, 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 going through. uh, Absolutely. From the (laughs) lumen, from the, from the, You know the gut into the bloodstream and and running amok there. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, Um, yeah.
1: So you compromise the tight junctions, and if you're eating a lot of vegetables too, it does kind of set you up for uh, being infected with different pathogens because uh, you're more likely to get sort of uh, E. coli and other other pathogens and, and, and vegetables if you're eating a lot of salads relative to meat. Um, So that's, you know, an important consideration, especially if you're traveling abroad and your microbiome, your gut is hit with bugs that it's normally not, you know, used to experiencing, which I have experienced in several occasions where we've traveled to the Philippines or Cambodia or Thailand or uh, Borneo, where a couple of times I got the, uh, you know, travelers, you know, scenario where you're, your gut is really hit with bugs that it's not familiar with, probably, or maybe it might have been uh, bacterial or viral uh, gastroenteritis. And I uh, did blood work immediately when coming home, and my HSCRP, which is something that I measure quite often, it's usually uh, 0.1 or 0.2, or sometimes not even non detectable, was literally like off the charts. And in the last maybe seven, eight years we've traveled and it happened twice kind of on my way home. And I was almost excited to do blood work to see what was going on in my body. And the thing that just was screaming off the charts was my immune system was like hyper, hyper activated, like C-reactive protein. I didn't even know it could get that high in me because I'd measure it so many times and I rarely, rarely get sick. So uh and that that's a really good indication that as soon as you compromise the integrity of the intestinal mucosa and those tight junctions uh, loosen up and allow things to enter circulation, you know, you get systemic inflammation, you get you know the chills, and that leads to neuroinflammation. it's not great for your brain and stuff too. so mm-hmm. something to consider, yeah.
0: So let's talk about measuring ketones. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I um, I've heard you say before, which I think is a very astute observation, uh, is that the ketogenic diet is one of, is the only diet that has a biomarker associated with it, mm-hmm. which is the production of of ketone bodies or, or the presence of ketone bodies. Is there a preference that you have in terms of how you measure, um, ketone body production? So there's several different ways. There's blood, there's breath, mm-hmm. uh, there's urine. Um, and are there any, uh, and, and maybe there's ones that I don't, I haven't mentioned, but are there any, are there any advantages of any of any of these methods over, over the other and which ones do you prefer?
1: Yeah, it depends on, uh... You know why you're using the ketogenic diet i think and what your budget is too um yeah the, the urine strips get like a fairly bad rep but i think they're actually they give you a semi-quantitative uh indication whether you're in ketosis or not so uh and there's people within the world of neurology and epilepsy that still use us in kids and and it, they they you know they use it quite well in managing and titrating the ketogenic diet from that scenario. So uh, if you're on a limited budget, I think you're in the keto sticks are quite uh, informative to tell you if you're in ketosis or not. And once you have confirmed that you're in a state of ketosis and you want to get more insight into uh, adjusting your diet and maintaining a state of ketosis, or maybe you're testing a ketone supplement or different versions of the ketogenic diet, then a blood ketone meter can be useful. And Abbott Lab, they make the Precision Extra, and I also use the Keto Mojo, and I have a few other devices that I'm tinkering around with, which seem to be pretty good, actually. Uh, uh, I won't mention them yet because I'm still testing them. But another uh, method for testing that I I actually prefer now is, um, especially because I think it's, it's very good for being a highly correlative to fat oxidation is breath ketones and readout health makes an FDA approved device called the the biosense meter. And I've made thousands of measurements of my blood ketones, beta hydroxybutyrate. uh, And I've correlated it on a eucaloric diet, which means I'm meeting my caloric needs with my breath uh, acetone. And, and then it parallels it quite well on different versions of the ketogenic diet, even with exogenous ketones. And then I noticed that if I had any degree of calorie restriction or I fasted, and particularly if I was active, your body is using beta-hydroxybutyrate as a fuel, whereas the fat burning process becomes elevated and would detect you know my acetone levels as increasingly getting higher, which made sense because I was in a higher state of ketosis. But uh, if your tissues are hungry, then you're facilitating disposal of beta-hydroxybutyrate into in the tissues. It's using it as energy. Uh, so beta-hydroxybutyrate was not a great indicator of ketosis if you are lean, if you are physically fit, if your body is is insulin sensitive and um you have a high metabolic rate uh i noticed that people just can't get a high level of beta, of blood ketones i've noticed that and i'm kind of one of those people but i did notice my breath acetone was going off the charts i think by the time i reached 48 hours of fasting I maxed out the meter at 40. So I didn't even know what it was, but it was just 40, 40, 40. And that's as high as, as it goes. And I think that's a very good indication of it being in a very high fat oxidation state. Whereas my blood ketones were like 1.5 to 2.5 and staying that even in a prolonged fasted state. Uh, But sometimes, you know, when I'm fasting, I could have a ketone level of like 1.2 and my, my, breath ketones will be really high and they're measured in ACEs, ACEs. So I think if someone, I think the breath ketone device has many advantages for people who are into intermittent fasting and who want to track their fat oxidation. And you don't have to buy strips and you can puff into it, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times, and you don't have to tinker with sticking your finger or buying strips. So that's that's a major advantage. I'm still testing it. Uh, It's being used in many different clinical trials right now. So um, I was a little skeptical in the beginning, but it took me about a year or so and a couple broken devices and things. But now the device is is very accurate. And I think it's probably the best indicator of measuring your fat burning, fat oxidation effect. So I'd recommend it for people for that.
0: That's, and I I agree with you. It's, it's, it's less painful too. Right. So you can also like for the kids, right. You can also get them to just breathe into it. It's not, you're all in, an. if you, especially if you want to take several measurements a day, you know, you, at some point you're just, you're like squeezing your, (laughs) the blood out of your fingers. Um, I would, and maybe you've already answered this. Um, we've all, like we've all, I've, I've given several like glucose tolerance tests for patients. So we give them like a, like a Disgusting drink that they have to, or we, or we look at like postprandial glucose if glucola, they're wearing a CGM, yeah. yeah, like the Glucola mm-hmm. example yeah. is like seventy-five grams of glucose. And is there is there an equivalent to a glucose tolerance test where we might have a ketone tolerance test?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I became interested in this because the late Dr. Beach brought it to my attention that uh, athletes. Uh, will dispose of ketones really quickly in their tissues because um, athletes who are not even on a ketogenic diet will often enter a state of ketosis. It's called post-exercise ketosis when they deplete their liver glycogen or muscle glycogen when they're exercising. So their bodies are kind of used to using ketones uh, to producing them to transporting them across tissues which is a transporter and to burning them in the tissues which involve ketolytic enzymes so all these things are sort of upregulated in athletes so if you administer an exogenous ketogenic formula whether it's an ester or salt you'll it'll clear from the blood faster so it'll spike up and then clear from the blood faster similar to giving glucose to an athlete that's insulin sensitive so, whereas if you have a couch potato subject who's just never exercises uh, and maybe not metabolically fit, the pharmacokinetic curve of that will be shifted to the right. So, the area under the curve will be much larger. And uh, similar to administering glucose to a type two diabetic, it'll stay elevated for a long time. Uh, so, you know, you could conceivably do a ketone tolerance test uh, and administer ketogenic agents in different different forms and different levels and see how fast they uh, dispose of, how fast your body disposes of them and clears them from blood. And that could be a way to assess uh, being keto adapted, you know, over time, the more we make ketones, transport them and burn them as fuel, uh, the more adept our body becomes at doing that. And I think that becomes a major factor in some people Quickly adapting to the ketogenic diet, and other people going down the spiral of uh, a keto flu. Like I never really had the keto flu, uh, but some people get hit pretty hard by it. And I think that could be mitigated in part by with exogenous ketones. uh, the The bottleneck seems to be the various enzymes that are associated with ketogenesis in the liver. So if you go on a low carb diet, your insulin and glucose go down. And if you, your body does not ramp up ketone production in the liver and there's quite a few enzymes and they're regulated through a diverse set of pathways. And many of those pathways can be completely deficient or very impaired in some people. And we can have all sorts of SNPs that can, uh, and I'm actually reading into this now, it's a very fascinating literature. So, so some people do not, some people can quickly robustly make ketones in the liver and other people not so much. And I think that plays a big role in um, keto flu and also uh, the, the glucose withdrawal that the brain glo- goes through. I think when we enter a ketogenic state or if we fast and some people, there are certain enzymes that people don't make and uh, they can actually have a seizure or go and faint and go into a coma in a fasted state because they lack certain production of uh, various ke- uh, ketogenesis enzymes.
0: So let's talk about, let's talk about exogenous ketones. Cause this is, um, you know, and I'll call myself out here. This is something I know that you've spent a lot of time um, researching. And when I first was introduced to the ketogenic diet and I, and maybe it was just because of the nature of who was approaching me around, you know, promoting, you know, their ketogenic product. It was all, their their ketone product. There was always a, um, sort of in my, in the back of my head, there was always like a hard eye roll, like, okay, this is like an MLM, you know, yeah. downstream, I was going to be part of their, you know, downline or whatever they call it. And mm-hmm. they always used your name, by the way. It's like, oh, he, he helped formulate this, this product. But yeah. yeah, so there's, there's I always um, sort of had this resistance to using exogenous yeah. ketones. I always was a bit of a, of a uh, you know, a hard ass. And I would say you need to be able to produce endogenously. You first have to get at least 0.5 millimolar, you know, ideally to one, millimolar of ketones measurable. And then we can talk about, um, exogenous, uh, ketone supplementation. Um, I've since changed my mind on that. Um, especially when it comes to, at least in, in my practice, I saw a lot of, uh, patients with concussions. And so we Mm -hmm. know that there's this impaired, um, glucose uptake in the brain when the brain is inflamed from, you know, a car accident, or I would see a lot of, um, you know, I would see a lot of car accidents and a lot of soccer injuries, et cetera. So, um, let's maybe speak about some of the benefits of exogenous ketone supplementation, uh, some of the therapeutic uses of them. I'd love for you to talk about TBIs and concussions if, Mm -hmm. uh, if you, um, feel so inclined, because I have for, I don't, and I don't know why this is all, my, almost all of my concussive patients, I, they were I, like soccer players, which you can understand, they go up for a header or something. Um, but then it was female lawyers. <laughs> that was, it was like mm-hmm. female lawyers who were working themselves to the bone and, you know, maybe lost orientation, fell down and hit their head from exhaustion. And then I had my, and then I had my soccer Uh, cohort. So talk, talk a little bit about, and it doesn't have to just be TBIs. Of course, there's a lot of application for exogenous ketones. Um, We can get into some of those, including exercise Mm -hmm. and stuff, but talk about some of the benefits of them um, and their therapeutic uses.
1: Yeah, uh real quickly, like I was pretty resistant to studying <laughs> exogenous ketones and I wanted to study the ketogenic diet, but the office of Navy research was not very supportive of using a high-fat ketogenic diet in the military due to operational constraints. So, you know, you have a group of guys, Navy seals going into a mission, you got to start the diet, It takes a while to get into ketosis. So, and adapt they, to it,
0: the adaptability and- is also yeah. And adapt to it. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, you know, the the question was presented to me that, well, we're not really willing to fund that, but if you could develop test and and show a ketogenic diet in a pill, then you know, and that that got me on, you know, looking into this. And then I connected with a couple of investigators, Dr. Uh, Richard Veach was one and uh Henry Bruninggraver. So there's a kind of a long story there, but uh but what really surprised me is that when I was able to get, uh, I tested a number of different agents that didn't work. And I was like, so, uh, you know, see, you got, you need to adapt to a ketogenic diet. You need to. And some of the early studies with seizures for the type of seizure I was studying show that if you fasted the rats, then it was super neuroprotective. And I was convinced that the body needed to go through this adaptation phase. You change metabolic physiology and then the brain becomes sort of invites ketones to you know restore and we we didn't know at the time we still don't know how ketones are anti seizure but you know we got a particular agent that we administered to rats 30 minutes and they were on a high carbohydrate diet and we put them in the chamber and and we saw a remarkable increase in the latency to seizure and nerve protection and you know we did the next one and the next one and it was working every time And I realized it was something to this and it it depended upon the formulation. And there was a lot of nuance that needed to be sort of uh, understood and acknowledged. And that has been a big part of the the research that we've done over the years. So there's no doubt in my mind that exogenous ketones, uh, it doesn't have to be one or the other. So the way I kind of, when I present to at the American epilepsy society or the NIH at a recent workshop, Uh, There are people that are unwilling or unable to do the ketogenic diet for therapeutic purposes, or maybe even as a lifestyle. Uh, And in that case, exogenous ketones could be a good option for that, for that. But I think I kind of pitch it as a way to further augment the therapeutic efficacy of the ketogenic diet when it comes to neurological diseases, you know, cognitive function, even lowering blood glucose, inflammation, anti-catabolic effects, um, mood. Uh, I was talking with, uh, I was talking with, uh, an organization last night on bipolar and their son has bipolar and was put on a ketogenic diet. And it was the only thing that worked for them, but it was hard for him to stay on the ketogenic diet. And then they, uh, they acquired exogenous ketones and gave it to him and it worked remarkably well. And this is pretty, very interesting to hear because, uh, uh, my wife, as you may know, uh, uh, Chilla, she when we were gavaging the animals for another study and giving them exogenous ketones, she noticed that they were just easier to handle. They become their fear response was attenuated. So we ended up doing a series of studies showing that exogenous ketones lower anxiety and actually decrease fear response and actually have a favorable behavioral effect in the animals uh so and you reported that,
0: that yourself as well you said that you used to yeah. be very anxious and not wanted to defend your thesis and you sort of felt mm-hmm. much yeah calmer yeah so we can see that at least yep. in an N of one in humans as well
1: yeah you know i think it's important to to acknowledge though that When you fast or when you do a ketogenic diet, uh, actually when – you do a ketogenic diet and some people it could increase seizures initially. So there's this like period that you go through because it's a stress to the body, your body, it'll augment the sympathetic nervous system. Cortisol will go up. Uh, Glucagon goes up, insulin goes down. So it's a stress response. So uh, that's why the initiation of the ketogenic diet for epilepsy really needs to be done by a team. And I think more so for like, if we're going to use it for bipolar or different psychiatric uh, diseases. We need to really have a team of people treating the person. But once we go through that adaptation, and actually that's where exogenous ketones can come into play. Uh, I always thought there's something called status epilepticus where uh, patients could be in a continuous seizure for a period of time and you can't really feed them a diet. But in that case, uh, tube feeding exogenous ketones or giving them intravenously uh, could be very important in that, in that scenario. But there are many different benefits that were unexpected in our in sort of our research efforts over the years where we were hyper focused on seizures, but we acknowledge and we know now even in the seizure world that it's preventing seizures because it's making the brain work better so you're giving an alternative energy substrate you're uh, increasing the levels of gaba relative to glutamate and we know gaba is sort of a brain stabilizing neuroprotective calming hormone whereas many neurodegenerative diseases are pathophysiologically linked to excess glutamate, which causes an increase in, you know, uh, excitotoxicity, right? So, um, you know, and it's kind of interesting. We make GABA from glutamate through an enzyme called glutamic acid decarboxylase. So there's two enzymes, gad 65 and 67, and they are increased with the ketogenic diet. And they're also increased independent of the ketogenic diet, but with exogenous ketones. And we've published that in a model of Angelman syndrome, which we've shown in an animal model of Angelman syndrome. is very responsive. And then we move that to a clinical trial, which is ongoing now. It might be finished up and we should be publishing that pretty soon. So a lot of interesting, I think mechanistically, the ketogenic diet works and it's it's multifaceted and it works in a variety of different ways, which seem to be working synergistically. And many of those ways are independent of any known anti-epileptic drug Or any other drug that we know of, and I think that's why it works when drugs fail. So uh, in many and when kids, it's not; it's still not the first line of therapy. So kids have to fail not only one anti-seizure drug, but multiple anti-seizure drugs have to fail before they put their hands up and say, and then put the kid on the ketogenic diet. And in that case, when all drugs fail, two thirds of the patients who are put on a ketogenic diet respond favorably and a subset of them are cured, which means they are hyper responders and they never get seizures again. (laughs) So, you know, you have a therapy that's so effective. You when drugs fail, you would think it would be a first line of of therapy, but the neurologist, the epileptologist, they don't really have a a registered dietitian. They don't have a, a team of people that can help in that way. And you have to change like the culture of the family too, like you know, and clear out all the foods. It's, it becomes very difficult to implement. So There's that's hundreds why hundreds of it,
0: difference of behaviors, like you're changing yeah. the way you prepare your food, where you shop, like how you prepare the food, how you, yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I think the same could be for the common lifestyle use for using the ketogenic diet for weight loss or things like that. If someone is dead set on using it for weight loss and you have a woman using it for weight loss, but the guy is like eating chips and, and pop tarts and stuff every night, it's going to be hard. You know, I right. know even I'm pretty disciplined. And, and if I, I have like trigger foods at home, even like a bowl of fruit uh, or, or, you know, it becomes difficult for me and I have pretty good discipline to, to sustain, you know, a ketogenic diet. You have to clear, you have to purge the house of, of foods. And I think, uh, but at the same time I eat like a small amount of dark chocolate every night. I, I think if you restrict too much, then you become, um, it can trigger behaviors that can be counterproductive. So I think it's good to let yourself, you know, have a small amount, but for things like dark chocolate, it's almost like, you know, you eat a lot, you eat a small piece of it and that that's enough. You know what I mean? It's like,
0: Oh, you can't uh, have a whole bar of dark, cho- especially if it's yeah. 85 or 90%. Yeah. You know,
1: you, you,
0: you,
1: it's almost like you don't want to. Yeah. So. Yeah, You can't,
0: you can't. And it's, it's interesting that you say that because Uh, in my family, and this is, you know, hopefully child services is not going to be called, but you know, my, in my family, it was, they gave us wine when we were little Mm -hmm. and, you know, my children have, you know, they're 10 and eight and they, they're like, what do you, you know, I don't have wine that often, but when, you know, maybe it's Thanksgiving or it's Christmas or something, I'll have a glass. And what is that mommy? And it's like, well, try it so that it's not this, you know, to your point around not overly restricting. Um, What I saw growing up was when you know, teenagers, you were of age and you could start getting access to alcohol. They just went bat. They just went crazy. They went crazy. (laughs) And it wasn't that big of a draw for me because I was like, well, I've had this with my grandparents for, you know, for 10 years, like who cares?
1: Yeah. Well, well, just on that theme, like for me, red wine, or it's kind of self-limiting because I have a glass and once I feel it, that's when I stop. But if I drink more then I get sleepy and tired. So it's not, it's like, not, that I would not want to drink more of that. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, everybody's, uh, kind of different. I mean, for some people it may trigger the more you feel it, the more you want to drink it, but, uh, yeah. but, it, but yeah, you have to, um, it's almost like being addicted to alcohol or, you know, we are addicted to sugar in some ways. It's a little bit different response, but there's a lot of overlap on the brain chemistry that's affected with addictive, you know, personalities and, I think you need to strategize if you want to implement a, a ketogenic diet or just a low carb diet, you're, it comes, it, it really results in what's on your grocery list. Like you have to, and what's in your cupboards, you know, mm-hmm. you are going to eat whatever's in your house and you have to acknowledge that, that you can't go on a diet uh of certain foods and have other foods that are not part of that diet in your house. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what we I learn a lot from the epilepsy world like, you know, I hear a lot of stories from registered dietitians and a lot of parents that, you know, kids will find uh especially once they reach into adolescence, they will get around eating the ketogenic diet. It becomes very hard to implement. In adolescence.
0: And they don't they don't have the frontal lobe yet, right? They don't have that yeah, inhibitory yeah. control yet that's coming from so they see something, they're like, oh sugar, yum, let me just, yep. you know. Yeah. So I I I agree with that. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima, that's D-R-I-N-K, com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A, and you will get a free elementt sample pack with any purchase. Speak, speak to some of the, um, when we're taking exogenous ketones, um, I'd love for you to talk to the effects that it has potentially on glucose um, and insulin and some of the metabolic effects that exogenous ketone supplementation can have. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's uh, one of the things that we saw in our pharmacokinetic studies where we administer the exogenous ketones and then we measure ketones, um, you know, blood ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone and, and, and glucose over time is that we consistently saw a decrease in blood glucose to the point where it was very profound, like more than you would get from like metformin or something like that. So I attributed that to the, our, when we endogenously produce ketones, we regulate that production in our blood in a variety of different ways. One way is uh, we keep through ketone uh, in, our, in our urine and uh, ketone urea it's called. And then as ketones get elevated in the blood that can stimulate the pancreas to release a little bit of insulin. And then the insulin decreases you know it doesn't shut it off kind of like a rheostat right it, it decreases beta oxidation of fats in the liver and that accelerated beta oxidation of fats is actually what accumulates acetyl-CoA to make acetyl acetate beta hydroxybutyrate mm-hmm. so it 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 decreases, you know, ketone production, and it's a very fine-tuned uh, mechanism. And with exogenous ketones, it kind of like, you know, you wonder what's going on there. And my my thinking was that, oh, it's, it's just pulsing insulin, and then the insulin is, you know, triggering uh, glucose disposal. Uh, and that happens with a very large dose of a ketone ester, but it does not happen with, for example, MCTs or ketone salts. So the the lowering of blood glucose must be due to a different mechanism. So the mechanism, the potential mechanisms, and I think this is could be highly therapeutic, and it's important to talk about, and it's really important to do more research. And now I see on ClinicalTrials.gov there's quite a few registered clinical trials looking at this but I almost feel like I was like the first one to see this and, but we weren't really studying it to look at glucose regulation. We were studying it to look at seizures, but it was just like data that we it was very interesting to us. Uh, and I've measured my insulin in response to high doses of ketone ester. And I, I do see it go up, but only when you get past about two to 2.5 millimolar Delta, So I have and that's a pretty large, that's almost hard to do with a ketone salt, but you can do it with a ketone ester. Uh, So we see that independent of an elevation of insulin. So this is very important because that's uh, assuming or an indication that it's enhancing insulin sensitivity, which is a really good thing. It's also indicative of decreasing hepatic glucose output, and that could be due to decreasing gluconeogenesis or decreasing maybe glycogenolysis so a lot of you know glucose that we're getting in circulation is from gluconeogenesis but a lot of it's from your liver has glycogen and it's breaking you know it's it's synthesizing it and and uh breaking it down and it's it's interfering with that process in some way The only way we're gonna really figure it out is to do like metabolomics on the liver. So I'm in contact with some people and I think I wanna get to the bottom of this and figure out what's going on. I think it has significant implications for managing type two diabetes yes. with, uh, exogenous ketones,
0: mm-hmm. even, even, um, you know, my understanding of, you know, the metabolic management of cancer is very limited, but I would assume that in, yep. uh, cancers that are feeding off of glucose, at least initially, um, if we're able to attenuate the amount of glucose that's available, then you're able to disrupt their energy source as well.
1: Uh, I didn't know we were going to, you know, you want to go down the cancer road, but that, I mean, I could talk about that for a while, but that actually is why I became so interested in this idea of being able to lower blood glucose without increasing insulin and, uh, and the ability to do that and creating an engineered metabolic therapy that could change different metabolites and actually put the body into a state where you're uh, restricting fuel sources to the cancer and creating a hormonal uh, scenario where you have insulin suppression, elevated ketones, a uh, limited amount of glucose, and in some cases, certain amino acids, and you are suppressing, you know, The mTOR pathway and igf1 and other things that could marginalize you know the growth of of cancer um so i think i I view exogenous ketones as a tool to achieve what's called a low glucose ketone index which is the measurement of glucose over ketones in the millimolar concentration Mm -hmm. and if you are for example if if i fast for 72 hours I can get my ketones to about three, you know, and my glucose gets down to about three. So that's a glucose ketone index of one. And uh, you can achieve that on a high carbohydrate diet within 30 minutes with an exogenous ketone ester, you know, and is that the same state? No, but you are rapidly producing a physiological state that I think over time, if that's sustained over time, uh, will have favorable effects on the metabolic management of cancer for certain mm-hmm. cancers, for sure. And, and we'll have an anti-seizure effect.
0: You mentioned um, esters and salts. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe let's talk, let's talk about the difference between them, um, what an exogenous ketone is in the form of ketone salts, and then I'd love to talk about some of the different... Um, Uh, forms of salts, and then we can talk about esters as well.
1: Yeah. uh, The first agents that we tested were ketone esters and they're synthesized from a variety of sources. What we found in our studies early on was that a ketone ester that when ingested elevated both beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate in a one-to-one ratio, that particular ketone ester gave us uh, the highest level of neuroprotection. Whereas when we used a beta hydroxybutyrate monoester, uh, then that did not have, that was uh, the first thing that we tested. It didn't have any anti seizure effects. So I, I thought maybe we we're going to throw this idea out the window. But I talked to more basic science researchers and they said, well, the data seems to indicate that you need to elevate acetoacetate and acetone. So then that led me to. Uh, this ketone ester that elevates acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate and then that was remarkably effective and we published a number of publications on that um, so then we started then I had this idea I started thinking about well can't you make a ketone salt and I saw sodium beta hydroxybutyrate was what we used in our cell cultures so we would buy small amounts from sigma and then we would you know mix it up and then we would grow the cells inside the cells so I was like, why can't I just take sodium beta hydroxybutyrate? And I was like, why can't you just can make another take other monovalent and divalent? Uh, you know, cations and combine it with beta hydroxybutyrate. So I was like talking with chemists and I was like, yeah, we should be able to do that. And we are looking at how come nobody's doing this. So we started tinkering around and we started making, you know, potassium beta hydroxybutyrate. And then it was like, well, why don't we try calcium and magnesium? Uh, So we started making these salts and then that's sort of like the back history of how we created that's all, you know, the whole market of, of ketone salts was sort of this idea of, you know, the, the fear in the past was that you'll have a sodium overload to get into ketosis. You had to take massive amounts of sodium beta-hydroxybutyrate. And there was, you know, there's been persistently this fear of salt, right. Uh, but that's so that another, you know, along
0: with estrogen and yeah. cholesterol. I mean, these are the demonized three, but yes, go on.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my, the, 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 the first idea I had was like, uh, I was looking at sodium and I looked at the studies on sodium. Cause I did have a fear of sodium even at the time. And then I looked at studies that gave like sodium potassium and there was no elevation in blood uh, pressure and some other things. I was like, why don't we just create a, uh, you know, a balanced sodium potassium salt, then that should solve the problem. And uh, potassium was a little bit problematic for di- for different reasons, but uh, it could stop your heart if you take too much of it. Uh, that was one reason, but, but we started tinkering with like calcium magnesium and creating other Kijan salts and, Long story short, you know, it became a couple, you know, patents and uh, companies picked it up companies that I did not pick that the university picked as licensing partners. And then, you know, there was a whole market formed and MLM companies and other companies out there selling, selling ketone salts. Uh, so I, I really believe that there, if you formulate the, ex, the ketone electrolytes in a certain way, And after tinkering with it quite a bit and looking at purity, potency, and most importantly, tolerability, gut tolerability is super important. We settled upon an electrolyte formulation that's kind of similar to like a like Gatorade, actually, it's very similar to the supplement LMNT or Element that Rob, oh, that's Rob has. that's
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I love that. I kind of use it every day. I'm drinking it right uh, now. Actually,
0: I'm drinking oh, the, wow. the grapefruit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love yeah. This stuff. Yeah,
1: I actually, I really love the. T- I think it. I think it's electrolytes are super important, and we just happen to come on, and maybe not by accident, because it is the most tolerable and electrolyte, a balanced electrolyte formulation that's very similar to element, but the the electrolytes are bound to ketones. So when you're consuming it, you're getting an LMNT or element type uh, electrolyte formulation, but you're also delivering ketones at the same time. So that's the formulation that we tinkered with. And uh, we did quite a bit of research, not only on ketone esters, but also these ketone salts. And they seem to be, you get favorable effects when you combine it with MCT, not everybody can tolerate MCT, so that becomes you know a problem for some people, but not but not all. But if you have you know the electro the, the salts are pretty potent in and of themselves, but in certain scenarios they work better if you combine the salts with MCT. And there's different you know products out there that you can just get pure MCT. And the MCT and
0: intolerance is because of the lauric acid or because of the the saturated fat metabolism. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I've looked into that, uh, and there's no universal sort of consensus as why you know as to why we have an intolerance to certain medium chain triglycerides. But octanoic acid and decanoic acid, uh, they also go by the name of uh, capric and caprylic acid, can be irritable to the uh, small intestine for some people, and and they are to everybody and under certain uh, combinations and, but they can also be sort of have favorable effects on the. So it's kind of like a dose thing. Um, it, the triglyceride, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to look to find an answer to make MCTs more uh, palatable, so you can increase. It's remarkable because rats have such a robust fat metabolism. If you gavage which is kind of like tube feeding a rat mct you can get ketone levels up equivalent to a ketone ester uh, which is really you can't get you can't get five six millimolars of, of beta hydroxybutyrate in a human by administering mct but you can in rodents because their liver have really high rates of fat oxidation when you deliver the mct uh, but it would be nice to figure out a way where you could do that with mct and humans and that would be like the poor man's ketone ester right mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. ketone you know mct they're they're not really flavored but a ketone ester no matter there's no way around it you can't uh you can't really flavor it in a way but what you can do is actually put the molecule that we're working with we put it in capsules and the next study because it's so potent you just take a couple capsules and you could a very high i can i think i took uh i put it in capsules and took eight to 10 capsules and blew into my, my biosense meter. And it pinned it to 40 for like the rest of the day. So, oh, wow. uh, so it's, it's a super potent molecule. Uh, and then, you know, some, the liquid formulations that you drink, all the ketone esters on the market, they're expensive. And, uh,
0: and I, I they're think they're horrible you can get, tasting as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. They also get,
0: taste like, I don't know. They taste like rat poison. I, I can't. Anyway. Yeah. yeah I interrupted and, you.
1: Well, no, no, you did. I think it's a good, that's a good point. And I actually, we sent some to some chemists and they did a mass spec on it. And it had a lot of other stuff in there that shouldn't have been in there. So that was unidentifiable. We couldn't match it up to anything like on the spectrum. So uh, whereas ketone salts are so simple, right? You just have beta hydroxybutyrate and then you have a monovalent or divalent cation a fancy term for sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can also do like lithium, like we have a lithium beta hydroxybutyrate, uh, which is another, it makes it more stable or lithium acetoacetate. So you can can make these salts and you can uh, engineer them and make it so they replenish your electrolytes and that they taste good. And then you can mix them in with food if you want. Uh, and you can, you, they're very versatile and they're very stable. Uh, the shelf life is very, very long and they don't have to be liquid. They can be in a powder form. So uh, I'm in favor, you know, I've, we probably published more on ketone esters. So I have, you would think that I would be biased towards ketone esters because most of our publications are ketone esters, but I see the value and the utility and now you can get, Purity, potency, and if you do the electrolyte combination right, you can have very high tolerability of these. And I think they're safe. You know, I do think they're very safe. I mean, I mean, different certain companies, they report selling something like 30 or, or 40 million doses. And that, like there's no adverse events really like on the FDA website, which, you know, something like Red Bull, you have tons of events. So these things are very safe. And it's just, it was like a big consumer experiment, I guess, because they were like sort of new entities, these molecules that really did not exist before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they got brought to market very fast. And I was like, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, But, you know, I was taking them myself and I, you know uh, and I knew they had therapeutic benefits and I knew there was people out there that, wanted to use them for different, for managing different chronic disorders. And I think that was uh, part of the motivation of, of creating, you know, ketone salt products too.
0: So I know that there's different, when we talk about keto, ketone salts, there's different uh, enantiomers where we have, um, you know, the um, we have the D and the L I'd love for you to actually explain what that is and then Mm -hmm. why that's important when you're you know, if you're measuring, uh, your ketone, your ketones yeah, yeah. on a, you know, on a, a keto mojo or what or, you know, whatever, whatever medium, um, why that's important. And then what would mm. be the optimal, um, level that we should be striving for with these, uh, with these salts when we're, when we're taking our measurements?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's really important to know that a, the, the commercially available technology that measures blood ketones is measuring, it has an enzymatic assay on the little strip that measures D beta hydroxybutyrate. So uh, your body does, makes primarily D beta hydroxybutyrate in the liver, but it also makes L beta hydroxybutyrate, but in much smaller quantities. We have an enzyme called a racemase enzyme. So the D and L-beta-hydroxybutyrate are what we call enantiomers. So they are mirror images like your hands to one another, right? D-beta-hydroxybutyrate seems to have a favorable effect from an energetic point of view, whereas L-beta-hydroxybutyrate, for reasons we don't really know, uh, seems to elicit important signaling effects and then sticks around in the tissues a bit longer. So it it is found in nature. If someone says, you know, l beta hydroxy is not found. No, it's we know there's a racemase. It's it's just made in much smaller quantities. So on the market right now, commercially available, you have you can buy purely D-beta-hydroxybutyrate or you can buy DL, which is the racemic form. We did our research, and the first thing that we studied actually was the D beta hydroxybutyrate, and it did not have uh, anti seizure effects, but it was just stimulating beta hydroxybutyrate and elevating that in the blood, not the acetoacetate at the same time. So the molecule was uh, R 1,3 butanediol uh, beta hydroxybutyrate, R beta hydroxybutyrate. So it was primarily just elevating uh, the D form, beta hydroxybutyrate. So then the next molecule we tested was racemic 1,3-butanediol, which is this dye alcohol, and that breaks down to racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate. and and also releases the acetoacetate, you know, in in a one-to-one combination. So when you measure it, uh, if the beta-hydroxybutyrate in this case uh, is 2 millimolar, the total beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood from this particular ketone ester would be 4. You know, half of it would be L, half of it would be D. Uh, you know, there's a number of products on the market that claim they are superior because they are purely the D form and it's the natural form. But like I said, we do have we do make small amounts of L. I think. The but important- is that because
0: of the skeletal? Mu- is that because of the the uptake from the muscle? Why would why would that claim be made? That- why.
1: Why would D be better? Yeah, uh, so from a energetic point of view, from uh, a bioenergetic point of view, D beta hydroxybutyrate may have a favorable um, sort of energetic potency by oxidizing Q and stimulating mitochondrial ATP production in a way that sort of generates a higher redox state, uh, a more reduced state to generate more ATP. Uh, Whereas, you know, that's for the D beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate is sort of like an oxidized form of the ketone. Uh, So my, this was my understanding going into research that, uh, and I think it was biased by you know, I'm not going to name any names or products or anything like that. It was kind of biased by existing patents and, and existing research in the field. And uh, which was, you know, done in in a, in a, in a way that was pretty good science. But on the other hand, I connected with a researcher who is equally esteemed in the field and was, you know, kind of convinced me that a if you deliver ketones with a one-to-one ratio of acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate, that would be a balanced redox, uh, scenario in the blood. And then that would, that could have potentially favor. Whereas if you're just delivering beta hydroxybutyrate in the D form that creates uh, a shift in the redox that sort of sends your liver off balanced in a way. And, and so, um, It became an interesting discussion and an interesting chain of emails back and forth. Uh, Long story short, what we found is that the racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate formulations, whether that be salts or esters, seem to be producing favorable effects, not only in neuroprotection, but also anti-cancer effects. And what we know is that if you consume racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate, the D-beta-hydroxybutyrate gets burnt and uses energy pretty fast. And then the L-beta-hydroxybutyrate tends to stick around in the blood and the tissues longer, and then that gives the potential for the L-beta-hydroxybutyrate to confer favorable signaling effects in that particular tissue because it's not being burned as fuel as fast. So, you know, there's a beta-hydroxybutyrate receptor. There's epigenetic pathways. Uh, we published a paper with colleagues in Nature Medicine on the NLRP3 inflammasome and come to find out that L-beta-hydroxybutyrate also suppresses that inflammasome. And when we consume a uh, ketone product with D, that gets burned fast in the, in the cells, but the L sticks around longer and has a greater suppressive effect you know, on that inflammatory pathway. So the way I view it is that you have a favorable effect that racemic is optimal because you're delivering, you know, a molecule that may be favorably energetic. At the same time, you're delivering a form of beta-hydroxybutyrate that has a favorable signaling effect you know, in that simply because it sticks around longer and is able to activate a variety of signaling pathways and the body doesn't, you know, it burns it at a much slower rate. So, and then the the majority of research really is uh, done on this. And that's, uh, that sort of influences my decision based upon, you know, the research that we did. And it seems to have a glucose lowering effect. So the racemic has a greater glucose lowering effect. So I I feel that has greater utility, uh, for cancer.
0: Mm. So I, I want to ask you what your favorite, um, if you, if you're, I don't know if you're able to like mention products, um, in terms of which are your favorite products, but I have found personally, I like to work out fasted in the morning. That's when I can, you know, before the kids are up, like that's when I get my, that's when I get my workout in and I like to do it. I like to I don't always do this. It's usually on leg day. Um, So I'd like to take a shot of espresso and then have some ketones that I start taking before the workout. So maybe 10, 15 minutes. And then I go down and I'm drinking it intermittently in between my, in between my sets. And, um, you know, Chilla and I have have an affinity for Wonder Woman. And I was saying to her, like, when I do that, I feel like Wonder Woman. Like I could lift the truck in the final scene in like Wonder Woman, you know, fighting um, Aries. Mm -hmm. Um, so my, I guess I have two questions for you. One is, um, favorite, uh, exogenous ketone supplementations. If you have products, if you can, or if you have a, you know, anywhere that we can kind of go to find out more. And the second one is, and you were, you were kind of uh, alluding to it before when we were talking about MCT, but are there, um, you know, are there stacks, you know, for lack of a better word, are there combinations of supplementation with ketones that can augment in a favorable way, either performance in the gym or mental performance and focus? Um, so those would be my sort of my two-parter, my two-part question for you. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Good question. Uh, yeah, well, I'll tell you what I personally do. So, uh, yeah, Chilla was when people ask, us what form of of ketones we use. There was really not a whole lot of things on the market. We think we had issues with purity, with potency and tolerability of the existing products that were on the market. So it's like, why don't, why doesn't she kind of take this project and develop something that I personally use? So we had a variety of things and we would mix things together and over years of literally testing things and publishing quite a bit of research on formulations, um, we developed, you know, uh, a ketone product, uh, although, you know, it's 99, hundred percent of her work doing that. And that's the product that I, that I use and it's sold under the name audacious nutrition and it's sold as keto start and under the uh, company audacious nutrition, just kind of a cool name she came up with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, how I use it. I take about a third of a packet first thing in the morning, and then I add creatine monohydrate mm. to it. And, uh, I drink a big glass of water and then I mix that up and, uh, I take that and maybe, maybe occasionally amino acids, but usually just uh keto start, just a third of a packet with like three grams of creatine. And I down that. And then I brew my coffee. And everything. And to the coffee, I add a product uh called uh keto brains, and it has MCT in it. And it's got uh theanine and it's got alpha GPC and you know MCT. So is that brains that, with a Z? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Keto Brains with a Z. Uh, yeah. uh it's yeah, it's a product that I'm uh, really favor I've been using using it for quite some time and uh It's really good because it balances the caffeine with the theanine together. really creates like a very smooth energy flow. Yeah. But uh, I use the Keto Start product first thing, the Keto Start Plus, because it has some caffeine in it with water and i immediate it's like a nootropic like i'm just kind of ready to go uh i'm not like a super morning person but as soon as that hits i'm ready to go i go outside get some sun let the cows out let the dogs out feed the dogs and everything and uh make my uh french press espresso but let that sit for a while and then come in and have uh coffee with my uh Keto brains, and I either get to work uh, depending on if it's an intermittent fasting day, or I start cooking and we have breakfast together. Uh, The only thing, the main thing about intermittent fasting that I don't like is that we do like to eat together twice a day in the morning and then at night. And on the days I intermittent fast and don't eat until the afternoon, I miss that morning togetherness that we have. So, uh, but each night we usually, you know, we have dinner and then we, we walk the dogs and, and do that. But, uh, so I have a third of the pack of the keto start in the morning. And then in the afternoon, that's when I take, the other two thirds of the pack. And sometimes I'll use two packs a day, but really just like one pack a day. So I don't, you know, I don't use a ton of it. I use it sort of sparingly. Uh, It's pretty potent stuff. So the keto start has a higher concentration than any you know, product on the market. So you don't one packet per day is is plenty enough for me. Uh, But it depends, you know, if you're managing a chronic disorder or you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to, you know, optimally get into a, certain state of ketosis, you may want to titrate dosage, depending on, you know, what you want to use it for.
0: Yeah. And, and Chilla was generous enough to, uh, to send me a few of them when they came out and it's, a, I messaged yeah. sure her afterwards. I was like, this is a fantastic product. I just hit all my PRs on my, on yeah. my leg day. Yeah. I was like upping my squat and my debt, like it was yeah. a great lift. And um, yeah, so I, um, I really like using that. I usually only do it on leg day, which is like twice, mm-hmm. twice a week. So I'll do that with my, uh, with my coffee. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, there's so many questions that I've prepared. I know that we're not going to have time to get to all of them. I do want to, um, uh, I want to talk to you about cholesterol and exercise and all that, but I I do want to just, if we can, uh, in the time that I have with you, um, speak a little bit about the ketogenic diet and women. Um, and we've, we've been kind of, you know, dancing around it a little bit, but specifically around thyroid um, health. This is mm-hmm. one thing that um, I've seen, um, you know, I, I've actually seen both. I've, I've seen, you know, an improvement in thyroid function. And then there are, and I have some, I have certain thoughts about um, why this may be happening. But we, in some individuals, uh, we do see... Um, a worsening and attenuation of, of thyroid function. And of course, all the metabolic consequences that follow that. So uh, what, what have been your observations um, in someone implementing a ketogenic diet and thyroid function?
1: Well, I think female physiology is hyper reactive to perturbations in physiology, <laughs> So if that that could be a reduction in blood glucose or a reduction in insulin, and I think uh, female physiology and hormonal balance can be offset by a reduction in insulin, and insulin is involved in in thyroid. It is involved in the iodo enzyme, I think it's called, from the conversion of T, uh, T4 to T3 and then reverse T3. So suppressing insulin, which is what the ketogenic diet does, because that's actually how we, make, how we make ketones. We suppress the hormone insulin and then beta, beta oxidation of fats contributes to ketone production in the liver. Under eucaloric conditions with higher protein, I do not think this is an issue based upon communicating with hundreds of women like over the years in the context of a calorie restriction or in the context of a lower protein ketogenic, and I consider 20% kind of low protein. Whereas I think women, if they're, if they're, especially if they're on a calorie, redu- calorie redu- you know, calorie deficit uh, and they're on a ketogenic diet, I think they need to bump the protein even up to like 40. And in that case, that may provide the amino acids may provide enough of an insulin stimulation to prevent the level of insulin suppression that would be associated with reverse T3. So, or reduction in, in that active T3. So uh, I've communicated with some people and gave them that recommendation. They're like, well, yeah, you were right. Look, my hormones are, are back to normal. So it seems to be uh, if you're going low carb, if you're going keto, it seems to be about the protein, like keto calorie restricted, low protein leads to a suppression of, of thyroid. And uh, and also you tend to get a scenario where like if a woman's starting the ketogenic diet, she simultaneously starts doing more cardio and they start, you know, and then you have they, they do a greater caloric deficit on top of more cardio. So you have this synergy of and suppressing fasts. the hormone she and, starts, yeah. she starts and, and she starts fasting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, So that's a recipe for, I, I would, uh, even if you're going, say if you're competing in fitness or something to do it in increments, right. Like to, you know, do a low carb diet and then transition to keto and then, you know, and then keep calories kind of, uh, normal and then titrate it as you go. The, yeah. And people lose weight for different reasons, you know, maybe if they need to get back to the normal weight, but if they're trying to get into like contest shape or like for, you know, the beach or something like that to not do it, the more extreme it is, the more likely it is that you're going to shut down your, your metabolism uh, and your thyroid. Uh, whereas keep protein high, don't restrict too much. Don't overdo it on the cardio. I know some people go crazy with the cardio, but I've actually, I've seen, that's probably one of the biggest variables. Like everything could be kept normal. And, and if you overdo it on the cardio thyroid seems to be very responsive in a negative way to cardio, it's almost like the body's adaptation to preserve it. It's like, you can, I feel like I can keep my calories completely the same and I could go put my thyroid where I want it based upon my level of cardio. So I'm a big advocate of keeping cardio as minimal as possible and lifting weights, doing strength and resistance training and really stimulating the uh, the muscle because that's your metabolic engine, that's your glucose disposal organ, you know, that you have. Uh, and for women, it's even more important, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, this for bone density, you know, bone density is really a consequence of strong muscles, strong muscles will create the resistance and the tension on the bone that stimulates the reuptake of phosphorus and calcium from it and builds that bone density. So it's super important, probably even more for women than for men to do that resistance training three times a week or more heavy weights too deadlift, squats, stuff like that.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And this is exactly, this has really been in line with what I've observed as well. And I mentioned this at the top of our discussion that I have so many women who will come to me interested in the ketogenic diet who've been living on this 1200 calorie diet for decades. And then all Mm -hmm. they do is they equate, they'll make make the, the macronutrient adjustments, but they will keep the same caloric Intake. So, of course, when you're yeah. w- as a woman, your body's preparing for famine. When you when you're eating only 1,200 yeah. calories, basal metabolic rate tanks. You know, your exercise output is going to decrease. Your digestion slows, so your body can like literally take every morsel that it can, every piece of energy that it can from the food that you are ingesting. Yeah. Um, and then to your point, it's you know I, I see women doing four or five cardio sets, and like not just like a zone one or it's not a, it's not mm-hmm. a walk or you know a zone two training. These are like Peloton heart rates at one hundred and ninety, you know, uh, and you yeah. know, no shade to Peloton users, but you know, it, or any type of high intensity, you know, five times a week for forty minutes, where they just feel like they're dying on the on the bike yeah. or on whatever, um, and. I like that you mentioned 40%. That's actually uh, the exact protein um, amount that I typically. Re- so I like this therapeutic intervention of a 70, 20, 10 for about mm-hmm. one cycle. A woman's men- if she's in her menstrual years, we do it for about 28 days or however long her menstrual cycle is. And then from there, we alternate weeks based on where she is in her cycle, bleed week, preovulatory, luteal phase, and we change the macronutrient composition. So we'll go from a ketogenic like the, you know, the profile I just mentioned to maybe a 40, 40, 20. So it's like 40% fat, 40% protein. And then, you know, the fill is carbohydrates. And then that also, you know, I I love what you're saying because I, I think women in general, they need higher carbs. We, I mean, I think, I think this applies to men too, because I, I've seen, I've worked more with women, um, but I have seen in men that have been, you know, the four to one, you know, like the classic, like they don't have, or they're carnivore, they have no carbohydrates and then they fail. They fail those glucose tolerance tests um, because their body's like, what is this? I haven't seen this in years. I haven't seen this substrate. I don't know what this is. So you have this hyperinsulinemic, hyperglycemia, you know, glycemia, um, which can be improved. Like you give them some carbs and their carbohydrate, you know, their, Mm -hmm. their uptake improves. Um, But I think for women, we just need a base uh, we, we need a, a base higher in terms of our carbohydrate intake. And I would also say the fasting as well. I, I can't tell you how many women are like, I, t- I fast for 20 hours. And, and there's nothing, there's no, nothing yeah. wrong with that. But here and there, like that's, the name is intermittent fasting. It's not yeah. everyday 20 hour fast. Like, I think that's also yeah. really
1: to do it every day. So people ask me, do you do carnivore? I was like, well, maybe I'll have a day or two of carnivore, but to do it every day, day in and day out, it's like carnivore, no carnivore. It's like on or off. Like they're kind of like some days i just get busy and maybe I just have some steak and eggs and, and that's yeah. it. Yeah. But I really love what you said about, uh, and I think it's extremely needed, um, uh, with, Women's approach to nutrition, and I've seen it. You know, uh, I think in, in Chile too that our nutritional needs change with our hormonal fluctuations with the cycle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think, and maybe if that's the program that you have, and I know you coach women, I think that's extremely valuable service that needs to. Because you, I, I don't think it's it's wise for a woman to do eat the same foods every day throughout their cycle. We obviously have different needs. I mean you know, in different cravings and to develop a customized program that sort of meets those nutritional requirements throughout those hormonal fluctuations. is like super important to allow that process to happen naturally. Uh, I think it's part of that, but also to just, you know, balance brain chemistry and uh cravings and things i think it's super important so yes. awesome. uh, yeah and fasting i you know fasting's great i i tend to do well fasting but i also noticed that when i really got into intermittent fasting i started losing quite a bit of weight like for many years i just maintained uh i'm kind of tall so i maintained like 220 and then i was intermittent fasting for a while and i was like wow i hadn't weighed myself in a while i was down to like 212 and then 210 it's like i could not maintain my weight even though, no matter how much I lift or whatever, I just couldn't get enough calories. Is muscle so mass now, you were
0: losing? Muscle mass or lean body mass? Well, I think,
1: yeah, I think, um, and maybe it's due to just, you know, not do, I did kind of take a whole year off of lifting weights, but I was like doing body weight exercise and stuff too. But I just, I, I don't feel like it's possible for me to maintain the certain level of muscle and strength doing intermittent fasting. I just can't get in enough calories. And, uh, I think if we, I I do think it's super important to build and maintain as much muscle as possible going into, as we age now, I think it's like even more important now for age related sarcopenia is a real thing. Like I see it in, in people that are aging and they have to work harder to maintain that. And I don't personally, I don't have anything against uh, hormone or testosterone replacement therapy, but it's not something I want to do and for for a long time, hopefully like in 10 years or so. I, I do take DHEA first thing in the morning and I I noticed I just got some hormones back and my testosterone was fine. Uh but I just know like a lot of guys that in their like 30s and stuff and and some of them maybe have used like hormones in the past and, but they're like on full blown HRT, like testosterone replacement therapy. And I don't want to go down that path. If I don't have to for like another 10 years or so. And that, that can reverse, but then that comes with its own set of problems. Right. And then women, women have to navigate that too, with hormone replacement therapy. Huge. I remember my mom going through endometriosis and having a hysterectomy and things like that. So that's uh, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that, but, uh, but you know, guys have their own issues and the longer I can maintain a normal, you know, uh, natural hormone balance. And I think the ketogenic diet has helped me do that too. And keeping protein pretty high and adequate really helps too.
0: Yeah. And I agree with what you're saying, because especially directionally when you can do things like lift weight, as you mentioned, heavy for women and men, Mm -hmm. um, And women who still think you're gonna get bulky, I promise you don't have the testosterone. I tried, I was competing in figure. Like I tried, there was no, I didn't have enough tea um, to get there. So you won't get bulky, but you will absolutely recomp. You will absolutely change your body composition. And we know that we become more anabolic. There's more anabolic resistance that develops as we age. So to your point, it's harder to grow muscle as we get older. If you are not taking the right intervention, the testosterone declines. In men, it's, um, you know, this, uh, they've had this, there's this term, you know, andropause and kind of gets thrown around, which is supposed to be the analog to menopause, which of course is a much more gradual decline. Menopause is typically a much more sudden decline in, there's, it's a gradual decline in progesterone we see kind of starting in the 30, you know, mid thirties. Um, but with estradiol specifically and, um, you know, estriol and estrone, we see like this sort of all of a sudden there's no more yeah. <laughs> like within a yeah. year, you know, six months, there's no more. But I, I think resistance training directionally, of course, we know is going to increase your muscle protein synthesis. It's going to naturally increase your T levels, your estrogen levels. And then there's other really, um, uh, these are some of the things that I get really excited about because there's a lot of sort of strategies that you can, um, implement that are relatively low cost. So things like getting early morning light. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it has a hormonal balancing effect directionally, whether you're a woman, it improves your estrogen to testosterone profiles. If you're a male man, it it improves your testosterone profiles, things like nasal breathing. Like there's all of these things that Mm -hmm. are, you know, you can-
1: I'm a huge fan of both. Yeah. I tape my mouth at night and my wife thinks I'm crazy, but, uh, but she's starting to, um, you know, come around and, uh, I do, the first thing I do is, you know, walk out barefoot and let the cows out and just get bright, that bright- florida sunshine i think that it's almost it resets it, it activates the circadian clock in a way that uh it, i feel there's no doubt in my mind that uh and i need to do this i have a hormone kit but levels of dopamine and serotonin are right. much higher in balance throughout the rest of the day when i get that you know strong blast of sun coming up i think it's super important and you know, probably not, a lot of people just don't realize the importance of that. I think
0: it's yeah. super important. Yeah. And I I love that you're always testing because I think, you know, if we're talking about this for men or women, when your testosterone does start to decline, it would be really useful for you to know what your T levels mm-hmm. were when you were feeling good. Because again, yeah. for men, you know, normal ranges is like 300 to 1200 nanograms per deciliter. It's like, that's a huge range, right? And someone at 500 could feel yeah. amazing and you might have a natural uh, baseline of 800 you know nanograms per day de- mm. and if you were to go down to 500 you would just be miserable and overweight and depressed right so i think
1: um yeah you know what i uh i measured my testosterone for i've been doing it a while and i was in grad school and i was under a lot of stress it could have been psychological stress i was also working out a lot a lot more and I had like low normal testosterone and I got it done when I was like hitting PRs. And, uh, I was like, wow, that's weird. Cause I was like really strong. And I think, I think my, I, it might've been over training in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas it was certain times where I was just kind of taking off. I never like completely take off, always do some sort of exercise, but, uh, but training also increases. And this is an important, uh, consideration training will dramatically increase androgen receptor density, you know, at the, at the level of the muscle. So if you are, and a couple of studies came out, um, and I think Lane Norton had talked about that. He's a, he's a friend of mine, maybe different opposing uh, nutritional views in some way, but we're like on the same page 90%, but he, he reviewed it and I went to the studies and and looked the studies that you can have a testosterone range that it's pretty low, normal and still not really have any overt effects from that, at least from like a strength and muscle point of view. Um, So I, I, really believe that it's super important to train and train heavy and to do it with a relative amount of frequency to increase your androgen receptor density at the level of the muscle. And then you could overcome, one guy could have a thousand nanograms for deciliter or whatever testosterone and two or 300 And, you know, the guy with two or 300 that's training more, maybe getting more effective testosterone just because the androgen receptor density can, you can move that a lot. You can increase it by like 200% or more just through training. So I think that's an important aspect for people to consider. Yeah.
0: One more um, topic I want to cover with you as it relates to the ketogenic diet in women. And is that my, my women with polycystic ovary syndrome, um, I have found observationally, clinically, that these are the women that respond the best to ketogenic protocols, um, and partially because um, I think, and it, you know, this is size agnostic. It doesn't matter if the if the woman is overweight or she's of what would be considered a normal um, BMI. But there's there seems to be some correlation with insulin you know, hyperinsulinemia in these women and the correction that, you know, having a low carbohydrate and therefore lower uh, insulin response seems to offer them. I wanted to um, have your, you know, some thoughts that you have on PCOS uh, for women, as you were saying, you know, increasing the androgen receptor density. One of the things I also tell my PCOS ladies is you have to lift because this is going to increase the, you know, your glucose disposal agent, your glucose sink, your muscles, you know, the bigger that, you know, the more hypertrophy that you, you know, the the, the more muscle that you have, the better glucose disposal agent you will be. And I yeah. think that there can be some confusion uh, when you say, oh, if I, if I increase my androgen, but I'm already hyper... Androgenergic. So um, can, yeah. you speak, can you speak a little bit to uh, PCOS, the ketogenic diet, and, and potentially training as well?
1: Yeah, uh, I've learned a lot from communicating with quite a few people that have PCOS. And uh, I would go to the literature and uh, the study by, I think, Dr. Eric Westman from Duke, you know, would come up and, and maybe a few others. And I see that on clinicaltrials.gov, I think there's a couple other studies going on. So in the blood work and even in, you know, pictures, uh, communicating with people, you have the classical, you know, insulin resistance, uh, truncal obesity, like that intra intramental fat that you see, and then uh, higher androgen levels. Uh, it's really about hormonal balance. So they, they, these uh, women are very responsive to the ketogenic diet, which lowers insulin. And then through that, that's kind of like the springboard or that that's kind of the facilitator of balancing out many other hormones through, you know, reducing insulin, uh, hyperinsulinemia. So bringing insulin down, uh, there's a little delay, but soon after that, all the other hormones, including testosterone will go back in the balance and it'll start liberating some of that, uh, truncal, like that intra mental fat and fat is, um, uh, it's important to acknowledge that fat is an endocrine organ, right? So it makes like inflammatory mediators that influence our other hormones, uh, uh, sex hormones and things like that. So as we start to, you know, reduce our body fat, you know, inflammation goes down, and inflammation contributes to insulin resistance, so it's multifactorial. Uh, but PCOS is one of those conditions that's very responsive in most cases. To uh, it doesn't have to be the ketogenic diet, but that's the fastest way to reverse it. And and to and and some women with PCOS are in like really dire straits. They're like in pretty bad shape. So the you know doing a ketogenic diet first. And then transitioning to like a low carb approach, which doesn't maybe necessarily have to be, you know, ketogenic diet, you know, all the time, but even, you know, 50, hundred grams of carbs a day could probably maintain, you know, uh, the reversal of the PCOS once they do it. Uh, I've communicated like recently with people that tried everything and then the ketogenic diet was the only thing that, that worked for them and it worked quite well.
0: Mm -hmm. And then we also see improvements if we're, if we're taking, you know, uh, uh, if we're looking at their hormones, we see improvements in their luteinizing, their FSH to yeah. LH ratios, right? Which is actually yeah, yeah. what you need mm-hmm. to ovulate. You need that big differential yep. and luteinizing hormone. And uh, yeah, the ectopic fat distribution is a really big one as well. That central obesity. Because um, for women, <laughs> even though we don't like it, you know, we should, you know, we should have more weight in our sort of lower tummy, bum, hip area. Um, mm-hmm. But when it's sort of that apple, uh, you know, that central, like that spare tire sort of... Um, uh, distribution, you can run into a lot of yeah. uh, issues there. I had, um, Dr. Robert Lustig on the pod and, and he was oh, talking yeah, yeah, about Rob, visceral, mm-hmm. ob- like this, you know, NAFLD and this like human foie gras, as he calls it, um, where we see, you know, the central obesity is really often an indicator and like your waist to hip ratio really being a good indicator, very, you know, free tool again, like waist and hip divide them, you know, divide the waist into the it hip. It is,
1: it's very good. Yeah, actually. Yep. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So uh, just wanted to, um, to throw that out there as well.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of, people look at it as like an aesthetic thing, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that it's, it's really like a health and longevity thing. So if you focus on that simple ratio biomarker and try to reduce, you know, keeping it, Books were written about this, I think, by Dr. Oz back when I was like in college, like 25 years ago. It's like your your you're, you're, you're <laughs> So it, these are simple things that you can you can do. And I think um, uh, to focus on and, you know, so some people are not going to measure ketones. Some people are not going to wear a CGM, although I think these are super valuable tools. They don't have to be, you know, you don't have to wear a CGM for the rest of your life, but just simply wearing it for uh, two weeks or four weeks. And looking at that insight, looking at the app, um, can be super valuable for the for that. So I, I tell people, uh, and, and it's becoming more affordable now, that when they start a dietary program, and to wear like a CGM and to look at those changes and to see how food affects your glucose, which would be affecting your insulin. That's super valuable. And then that becomes a behavioral tool. So we have a clinical trial now using continuous glucose monitoring with the levels app actually. And, uh, and we're using, we, we wrote it up using CGM as a behavioral tool. And I think it could be a very powerful behavioral tool when you can see quite literally what's happening to your glucose. 100%. in 100%. Oh,
0: yeah. we had Casey, uh, Dr. Means on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, And mm-hmm. l- like, mm-hmm. it's such a, when you can gamify it, like I know for you, you know, mentioned, like we were talking about wine before I wear my Oura ring. If, if I get a ding on my HRV, like I'm not going to, I know that I'm going to stay away from the things. Like I'm going to make sure that I go to sleep at the same time and I can be a little bit, mm-hmm maybe a little tyrannical about it, but, you know, but I know that, you know, when I open my app the next day and it's uh, syncing my data, I'm going to get that feedback. And I think the same is true for CGM, where you, you know, if you know that you have a, you know, a poor response to, I don't know, cauliflower or something or Mm -hmm. almonds or whatever, then you're going to, you're going to abstain from taking, because you're going to see that your, you know, glucose, you're going to have that spike and, you know, you can start to correlate those spikes with, you know, that interoceptive, like how you feel, how how does it feel when you have this, when you're in this hyperglycemic state? And I think that it's it's hard if you don't have these tools sometimes guiding you, if you are not connected to your body, to be able to say, yeah, I feel a little woozy or I feel a little, you know, frenetic. You know, a lot of people will say yeah. after wearing CGM that when they, when they they consume foods that they know that they don't process well, that they can say, yeah, I actually feel a little manic or I feel a little, I feel a little nuts when I, when I, when I consume, yeah. you know, X food or Y food. So.
1: And that's coming from you, from a perfectly healthy, fine-tuned machine. Sorry, and if you apply these wearable technologies and monitor sleep, and monitor, you know, glycemic response, and exercise too, which is a valuable inter- intervention for even, you know, psychiatric disorders. We're, we're having this conversation about bipolar, and and you know, I, I know I get consistent feedback that. That's highly re- the, the trigger is highly related to sleep hygiene and and sleep like sleep deprivation and diet and certain things can can trigger that. And if I am a doctor and I want to monitor my patients and have the best outcome for my patients, if I could just slap a CGM on them. Or just let them wear an aura ring, and then I have oversight to see, you know, if they're following a particular dietary intervention, or they're getting healthy sleep. And if they're not getting healthy sleep, then I can see that that correlates with, you know, a manic episode or something like that. If we're looking at a uh, behavioral disorder, but I mean, for type two diabetes too, if everybody in your family has it at age fifty, and you're forty and you don't want it, you know, your doctor should send you out. You know uh, a CGM, and then look it over, and then the next you know follow up. Say, okay, what was your diet? Look at what you did here. Whatever you did here, don't do that. You know, these are simple things, and insurance companies can can pay now or they can pay later. <laughs> you know, pay right. a little bit now right. and get get these relatively inexpensive devices out to to patients to help uh, prevent a potential problem from happening. And then once the problem happens and you have, it can become a bigger problem with comorbidities and, and hospitalizations. And I think, uh, and I know companies like United healthcare kind of looking into this idea of preventative care, like nobody, I'm a basic research scientist and no, no one's going to fund, develop a cancer prevention protocol or develop a diabetes prevention protocol. I mean, we really start, we need to fund not only basic science research, but we need to fund larger clinical trials because prevention is a cure for for many of these things. Yeah. So, um, and I, I think that's what you're doing really through the podcast and putting out this information, getting people healthy, maintaining them healthy to prevent age related chronic diseases down, down, down the path. My grandmother,
0: exercise grandmother is a powerful tool too. exercise. I know exercise. There's no drug that will ever match exercise yeah, sure. as far as I'm concerned. And my grandmother used to say something like an ounce of prevention is a, worth a pound of cure. So she was yep. like the woman who would moisturize herself with olive oil and clean her house with vinegar before, you know, we started talking about endocrine disrupting chemicals and all of that. So, um, Dom I there's so many things so many more questions I had planned but I want to be very respectful of your time I want to come thank you on. yeah I want you to come back on we want to talk about exercise cholesterol I have actually admittedly 30 other, 30 more pages on this document that I haven't uh, gotten to yet, but I'd love to have you back on, but thank you so much for your time today, your expertise. And I'm so excited, um, you know, as on, just as a professional, you know, on a professional note, your work is somewhat like I have followed your work for many, many years and it's an honor to have this Thanks. conversation with you. So really, really happy that we did.
1: Thank you for following me and having me on. I appreciate you having this platform to speak to more women too. I know you have a, a huge women, and I think this information needs to get out to them. So uh, it's an interesting topic that I'm learning about too. I was listening to your, uh, I guess it was the menopause uh, or not menopause, but the uh, your cycle, the, the two series that you have yes. discussing yeah. the menstruation cycle. So I need to brush up. I know the basic science, but there's a lot of little nuances that I don't know. And I think that that, that information I don't see anyone else putting it out there like you. So I think it's super valuable.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to geek out with you on that as well. Yeah.